well, Lord willing, this will be our last day of deviation from the book of 1 Samuel as we go through this, this series on the Holy and the Common. I'm going to give the very briefest of recaps of where we've been. We started out by looking at that holy kingdom prior to the fall with Adam and noting that it was destined to uh, consummate in eschatological glory. Then we looked at the common kingdom as it is introduced in the fall. And we looked at Genesis 4 and saw how through the lens of the city of Cain, that realm was developed and God established it. And then we looked last time at the nation of Israel and how they fit into the whole holy common dynamic. And today, so you can see we're kind of moving through the Bible very broadly, we're going to come to the time period of the New Testament. And what we want to do today is show the following. Three things. First, that the New Testament affirms the continued existence of the common sphere that we've been looking at. Secondly, we want to look at how Christ's kingdom, which we read of in the New Testament, fits into all this. And then thirdly, we want to look at, uh, come to the conclusion of what is the state of the Christian, therefore, in light of all of these things. So then, let's look first at the New Testament witness. And then we'll see here the common kingdom affirmed. Remember that we said that that common kingdom was established in Genesis 3 and that the Noahic covenant reaffirmed and secured the existence of that kingdom until the the consummation of eternity and the dissolving of the, the heavenly bodies. And so if that's the case, if that kingdom was secured by that covenant to last until that point in time, then when we come to the time of the New Testament, we should expect to see that kingdom still in operation. And that is exactly what we do see. The New Testament shows us the common kingdom through the following means. It reaffirms both its principle of operation and it affirms its finite and temporal nature. Let's look at both of those things right now. First, the principle of operation. You recall that we have said that the common kingdom operates on that principle of of common grace where men receive blessings and cursings in this life indiscriminate of necessarily righteousness or obedience. Now, do we see anything like that affirmed in the New Testament specifically? The answer is yes, we do. In the Sermon on the Mount, our Lord affirms not only the existence of that common realm, but also the validity of that principle of common grace on which it operates. Listen to what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 43. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. Now, we'll we'll keep going in a second, but notice first, Christ in those words assumes that right now there is a sphere inhabited by both types of people, the righteous and those who persecute the righteous, the righteous and the wicked. They're both inhabiting a single common sphere of operation. So that's the existence of that common realm. But then he goes on in the next verse to affirm with the clearest statement in all of Scripture, the principle on which that sphere operates. Listen to these words. Jesus says, For He, God, makes His Son rise upon the evil and the good, and He sends rain on the just and the unjust. Now think about it. Sunshine is a blessing, is it not? Rain is a blessing. Man can't live without it, and it makes his life easier. And mankind does not deserve to have any of that. In fact, he deserves not only not to have it, to be placed instead under God's immediate wrath. That's what man deserves in his wickedness. And yet he gets, does wicked man, these blessings, but he can't point to anything within himself as the meritorious ground of his reception of it. 
So Jesus clearly says that wicked men receive good gifts, blessings from God, without any basis for it in their own actions, their obedience. That is how the world operates right now, even in the days of Jesus. Now that is an example of wicked men receiving blessings in spite of their disobedience. But we also see in the New Testament the other side of that whole equation. And that is that those who have been made righteous and who do seek to obey God out of a, out of a new heart, still, despite their, their reorientation toward obedience, in this life they still experience the curses and consequences of the fall. Let me give you an example of that. Take the famine in the days of Claudius. It's mentioned in Acts chapter 11. We read there that in those days, prophets came from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them, named Agabus, stood up and he foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all of the world. Now, what is a famine? A famine is the ground not yielding its increase to man in order to supply him with sufficient food. That echoes back, of course, to Genesis chapter 3, where God establishes all these temporal curses. And he says, cursed is the ground because of you. That's what we're talking about here, a temporal curse. Now, in Acts 11, it is safe to assume that the wicked and the unregenerate are going to suffer under this famine that is mentioned. They're going to suffer. Now, that's not surprising. There's, there's really no controversy over the fact that God allows the wicked to suffer in this life sometimes. But also instructive for us is the assumptions that come out from the apostles and the Christians when they are confronted with the prospect of experiencing this kind of temporal curse. Think about it for a moment. If they denied the existence of a common kingdom, then what might have been their response to Agabus's news? They might have said something like this. Well, thanks for the heads up, friend, but you see, we've been made righteous by God through the blood of Christ, and we've been given the ability to obey God's law with a sincere heart and mind. And you know, the law operates on the principle of blessings for obedience and curses for disobedience. And we can clearly see God's promise in Deuteronomy 28. If you faithfully obey the voice of the Lord your God and are careful to do all of His commandments, then blessed shall be the fruit of the ground and the fruit of your cattle and the increase of your herds. So there it is. God says it in His Word. If we obey and we work diligently, God will bless us and we should be fine. Thanks for the news about this famine, but we're going to be okay because we've got the principle of obedience. No, they knew better. Now, someone might object to them, but the text says it right there. It's in your own scriptures. Deuteronomy, obey and the fruit of the ground will come to you. The opposite of a famine. But why was that text from Deuteronomy not relevant to their situation in Acts 11? Because remember, this is harkening back to last time. That text was written as part of a covenant establishing a holy kingdom with Israel where they would experience blessings if they obeyed. But the Christians knew that the same biological, chemical, and meteorological phenomenon that would lead to a food shortage for the world around them would also affect them as well. They weren't going to get out of it. And so we read in verse 29 in Acts 11, So the disciples determined... Everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers. See, they knew that they were going to have to do something to provide relief for Christians. Why? Because Christians aren't going to be exempt from this suffering. They may obey much more than the wicked, but they're going to share in the curse just as much. Now, their response only makes sense if they believe that the principles of the holy kingdom of Israel that we saw in the Old Testament don't apply necessarily in a strict correspondence to the world outside of Israel. Now, one objection to this has been, well, the, 
the promise of blessings for obedience, that only works on the national level. So it only works if the entire nation obeys enough. But if, if uh, most of the nation is wicked, but some people are righteous, well, the individual righteous people, they're not going to get the blessings because it only works at the national level. I would respond to that by saying that while it's true that many of the Old Testament promises of blessing were given to a nation, there are also many verses in the Old Testament that put those promises for obedience in terms of the individual. Psalm 128, in your house, righteous man, your wife will prosper. No plague shall befall your tent, individual. It's not just the nation. In holy kingdoms, thank you, the blessings for obedience principle applies to nations and to individuals. So the apostles could have claimed those Old Testament promises if there is no such thing as the common realm and common grace. But they knew that their Lord's statement that God makes His rain and His sunshine to be shared with the just and the unjust is also true in reverse. He makes His famine, His tsunami, His plague to fall on the just and the unjust. And there are many other texts that are mentioned throughout the New Testament where the righteous are said to experience the curses of this life and the wicked will experience blessing. So that is the first way that we see the New Testament reaffirm the common kingdom. It assumes and explicitly states the principle on which it operates. Secondly, the common kingdom is affirmed in its finite existence. To see this, it is helpful to to know some of the other terms that are very similar in terms to the, the idea of the common kingdom that Christ uses. One of those terms is this age. Now, this age is not to be simplistically equated with the idea of the common kingdom. They're not exactly identical. This age is broader than the common kingdom. The common kingdom, in other words, uh, could be described as a subcomponent of the concept of this age. When we speak of the common kingdom, we are describing a a realm, an economy, a, a way that things work. But this age has primarily as its emphasis the idea of time, temporality. An age is something that starts at one point in time and it continues for a specified period of time. It may or may not have an end point. And so even though this age and the common kingdom can be logically distinguished as concepts, they are still intimately related, which is seen first and foremost in the fact that both of them have identical time frames. Both the common kingdom and this age began at the fall, and they both will find their end point at the start of eternity. And because those two concepts are so intimately related... We can take what Jesus says about this age, and it's almost always going to be describing as well the common realm. So then, let's look at Jesus' teaching on this age, and we'll use that to see how Jesus assumed that the common kingdom would come to an end. It would not continue. Take a look at Matthew chapter 13. In that text, we have the parable of the wheat and the tares. The background of that is that a man in this parable has a wheat field, and he, his enemy comes and he sows wheat into it, right? So now you've got wheat and you've got tares growing in the same field. And the man's servants see this. And then we read this, starting in verse 27. The servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servants said to him, Do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, no, lest in gathering the weeds, you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow until the harvest. And at harvest time, I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned and gather my wheat into the barn. 
Now, in this parable, the wheat are the righteous and the tares are the wicked. But notice, they grow together. They grow together. They're in the same sphere. So the first thing that we can say about this age is that it is a time where believers and unbelievers dwell together, where the wheat and the tares coexist. And that is one of the most basic features of the common kingdom. It's a mutually inhabited sphere. So this age and the common kingdom are intimately intertwined concepts. But now notice the finite nature of this age or kingdom concept as Jesus describes it. Jesus says at the end of the parable that the time is coming when this whole state of cohabitation is coming to an end. The end of the age means that one group is gathered and removed from the kingdom and thrown out to be burned, and that that coexistence is terminated. Why? Because this age comes to an end. The age ends, and that means the separation. And so with this age coming to an end, the common, the mutual kingdom that they share comes to an end as well. They are coterminous concepts. Now, Luke chapter 20, another text where we see this age and the common kingdom sort of equated showing that they're pretty much equal concepts, and that they are both shown to have an endpoint. In that text, this is a very famous text, the Sadducees come and they are asking Jesus, and they ask him that famous question about the woman who had the seven husbands during her lifetime, and whose wife is she going to be in the resurrection? Now notice, they are asking about how marriage works in the eternal state. They're asking about how marriage works. And what have we argued so far? That in the fall, marriage is no longer a holy institution that consummates into eternal glory. It has been refashioned as an important uh, institution or substructure holding up the common realm. But it, marriage, ends at the termination of that realm. Now notice how Jesus describes the relationship between this age and marriage. The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage. But those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead, neither marry or are given in marriage, for they cannot die anymore. So you see what he's saying there. Marriage is an institution of this age right here. But there's another age coming, that age, when this institution no longer is operative. And we've been arguing that marriage is an institution of the common sphere, and that therefore it comes to an end. So Jesus says the same thing about marriage that we've been saying this whole time. It comes to an end, but he calls it an institution of this age. So this age and the common kingdom are very, once again, closely related concepts. They contain the same institutions, marriage, family, procreation, labor, trade, and culture. And Jesus repeatedly affirms that this kingdom, this age to which those things belong, ends. And by the way... That passage, which speaks of uh, this age and the age to come, is not the concept of the Jewish age versus the New Testament age. Now, that may, that may sound like, why is that important? Well, there's several theological perspectives that want to say that when Jesus says this age, he's talking about the age that ends at the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. Because there's a lot of things that Jesus says about this age that seem to have turmoil and strife and, and not so good things. And they don't want any of that stuff to characterize the church age, especially at the end. So they redefine this age as the Jewish age. But that doesn't work. Why? Because marriage, Jesus says, is a component of this age. Marriage existed for the Jews. Marriage exists longer after the Jews. So this age, if it's defined by the, the, uh, the running stretch of marriage, cannot simply be the time when the Jews existed. It's something else. Now, one final New Testament text where the common kingdom's existence is affirmed and said to pass away is in Revelation chapter 18. And you can turn there. 
We've seen this somewhat recently in Paul's expositions to the book of Revelation. In Revelation 18, in that chapter, John is taken to the consummation of eternity. And he sees the destruction of the whore Babylon, that, that great city of sin that man has built within the common sphere. And the angel describes Babylon, which is a, a summation of life in this age. And the angel actually goes on to list specific things that make up Babylon, that are a part of Babylon. And they are many of the same institutions that we have argued are part of the common age. Let me read to you verse 9, and then I'm going to skip down toward verse 21. And just listen to some of the things that are said to be a part of Babylon here. The kings of the earth who committed sexual immorality and lived in luxury with her will weep and wail over her when they see the smoke of her burning. Jump down to verse 21. Then a mighty angel took up a stone like a great millstone and threw it into the sea, saying, So will Babylon, the great city, be thrown down with violence and will be found no more. And the sound of harpists and musicians, of flute players and trumpeters, will be heard in you no more. And craftsmen of any craft will be found in you no more. The sound of the mill will be heard in you no more. And the light of a lamp will shine in you no more. The voice of a bridegroom and a bride will be heard in you no more. For your merchants were the great ones of the earth. And all the nations were deceived by your sorcery. Now notice, what things are told to the apostle to characterize Babylon. What things make up Babylon? Kings and magistrates, merchants and economics, musicians and culture building, craftsmen, forgers of metal, and marriage and families. That's basically an identical list to what we saw when we went through Cain City in Genesis 4. And we saw, what are all the things that they start doing when they get out in this common sphere? They start making all this stuff and using it, participating in all these institutions. But here in this text, we get a vision, not of the beginning of those things like we saw in Genesis 6, but we've come all the way to the end of the age, and now we see that those things which were a part of the common realm at first now come to an end, along with the end of the age. Because they've served their purpose. They have helped to preserve this, this age, this kingdom, this realm, until the kingdom of Christ is ready to consummate eternity. Now that is a very small sampling of some of the New Testament passages that will show you the, that the common realm exists all the way from start to, to the end, all the way to glorification. Now, that's the common realm. But in addition to the common kingdom, the New Testament also presents us with the inauguration of another kingdom. One of Jesus' most basic teachings is that in his coming, a kingdom is being inaugurated, right? Think of Mark chapter 1 and verse 14. Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. And you know, many of his parables were just explanations about the nature of this kingdom. We've already looked at a couple of them. When we examine Jesus' teaching, we see that his kingdom is not like the common kingdom that we just examined in the New Testament. His kingdom falls into the category of a holy kingdom. Now let's go through and establish that. In order to do that, we need to remember that a holy kingdom, in contrast to the common realm, has two primary features. The holy kingdom is, unlike the common realm, working toward an eschatological goal. It's working toward a state of communion with God, of continual, perpetual communion. It does not have an end point to it. That's the first feature of a holy kingdom. The second one is that the blessed state of that kingdom, the kingdom blessings, are not secured by God's general providence and common grace. They are secured specifically by the principle of blessings for obedience. 
Those are the two features of a holy kingdom. So then we ask the question, do those things characterize Christ's kingdom in the New Testament? They do. Let's look first at how Jesus teaches that his kingdom has particular eschatological blessings, that in fact its entire nature is inherently eschatological. It consummates. Unlike the common kingdom, Jesus says that Jesus said in it at the end of this age, he says that his kingdom is working towards something better. We'll start with some general statements and move towards specifics. How about Matthew chapter 25? In Matthew 25, we read there the parable of the talents. The servants receive talents, right? You know that story? And after they receive the talents, there is a period of working, right? The master goes away, and those who have the talents are to steward said talents. And at the end of that period, Christ says that to those who are to inherit the kingdom, when he returns, he says to them something very specific. He says, enter into the joy of your master. Now think about that for a second. In the, in the timeline laid out by this parable, time as we know it passes. That's the period where they're stewarding the talents. And then after that, there's something else that begins. An entrance into a particular kingdom that is awaiting them. So Jesus gives it to us right there. Unlike the common realm, his kingdom is working toward something. That's what he says, enter into the joy of your master. There's one time period, and then we enter into something. His kingdom doesn't end. It comes to eternity, and then another period begins. There's another time period. That's a very general one, but it gets more specific. Matthew chapter 13, verses 40 to 43. We go back to the parable of the weeds, or the discussion of the weeds. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send out His angels, and they will gather out of His kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. But then notice this next statement. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. Notice, what does He say there? This age ends... But once again, his kingdom continues to exist afterward. We got that much from the last parable. But in this one, we actually get even more detail. He tells us that not only is it true that his kingdom continues at the end of the age, but that life in that future kingdom, life in that future state, is not simply a continuation of a similar existence to the one that we experience now. That transition that we saw in the first parable from the, the period of work to the eternal state is here now described as not only a transition of time periods, but actually accompanying that transition of time is a transformation of all of reality. He describes it as the righteous shining like the sun. In other words, Jesus asserts that one of the blessings of his kingdom is that men will be so changed in their mode of existence that they will actually shine, as it were. That doesn't happen in the common kingdom. This is a kingdom working toward an exalted state. It consummates. It goes to a different level or mode of existence. And in Matthew 25, uh, Jesus puts a very familiar name on that idea when he describes the, the separation of the sheep and the goats. After saying that the goats go into punishment, he describes the sheep, the state of the sheep. And what does he call it? Eternal life. That's the substance of his kingdom. His kingdom is one that secures an eternal joyous state of communion, an exalted state between men and their God. And so that's how we see that his kingdom is not like the common realm. It's a holy kingdom. It's working toward something. It will be glorified. 
Now, the second way that we see that his kingdom is a holy kingdom is that the state we've just described, that Jesus mentions in the parables of consummating to eternity, that state and that blessing is secured by obedience. Remember, the common realm receives its blessings through common grace. But in this kingdom, we find that all of these wonderful things are possible because Christ himself secures them through his perfect, perpetual, exact, and entire obedience to God. Paul tells us this very clearly. Consider Philippians chapter 2. We read there that Christ emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. Notice, for Paul, Christ obeys, and therefore, therefore, God exalts and glorifies him and bestows upon him the spirit of glory. So the very fact that human flesh at all can enter into an exalted state of glory, that reality is one because Christ obeyed. The very first time that human flesh was ever glorified, it came as the reward for perfect obedience. Now, lest we be tempted to despair, because there Paul only mentions that Christ obeyed and Christ was glorified, but lest we be tempted to despair at that and think that he merits this reward for himself alone, Paul tells us something in Romans chapter 5. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. The many will be made righteous. Christ obeys, and then those benefits, the blessings of that kingdom, go forth to many. And Paul later explains that the blessing of righteousness is actually the hope of glory, glorification. And he goes on in Romans 8 to tell us that not only... Will that glorified state of existence be enjoyed by himself, that is Christ, and the believers? But the entire created order is going to be a part of this glorified substance. He says their creation waits in hope to be set free from its bondage and to obtain something. To obtain the glory of the children of God. This is what makes Christ's kingdom a holy kingdom. The kingdom inheritance is secured by righteous obedience to God... And everything in it is subject to the blessings of glorification. So in other words, Christ's kingdom is the true fulfillment of what we looked at in the very first lecture. Adam's original kingdom. What it was designed to accomplish. Christ comes and he does it. And yet he does it even better. That's Christ's kingdom. Now, some questions. Questions very often come up in regard to, to this kingdom of Christ. I want to. There's a bunch of them. But I just want to go through three, three common questions that I, I see on the internet, that when I talk to folks, and that I have had myself at times. Three common questions related to Christ's kingdom. First, does this kingdom exist now, or will it exist at the inauguration of eternity? Now, that may seem like a simple question, but you read through the New Testament, and sometimes you seem to get statements that go both ways. Luke chapter 11, verse 20. Jesus says, If by the finger of God I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Okay, so did Jesus cast out demons? He certainly did. Therefore, conclusion, the kingdom of God has come upon you. So it seems to have a present reality, going all the way to his ministry. Then we read in Luke chapter 22 and verse 18, same book. 
Jesus at the Lord's Supper. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. Okay, so same book, same Jesus. Which one is it? He makes the kingdom in that passage sound like a future phenomenon. Well, this is one of those classic elements in that, that, that very common dynamic in the New Testament known as the now and the not yet. You see this in other areas too, not just in the area of kingdom, right? You see statements in the New Testament that say, we have been saved. And other statements say, we will be saved. We have been adopted. We await adoption. So there's a now and a not yet. And so we can say with respect to Christ's kingdom that the kingdom of God has broken into this age in its inauguration in Christ. But there is still a future element to come to this kingdom. And that takes place at the consummation. So we can say, yes, the kingdom of God does exist right now. The kingdom of Christ is operative. And yet, there are still future aspects to it as well. That's the first question. Second question. This one becomes a slightly more tricky, but not, it's not too bad. Were the Old Testament saints members of this kingdom during their lifetime? You see, if this kingdom is the kingdom that offers eternal life, and if those Old Testament saints possess eternal life, then we have to say in one sense they are a part of the kingdom, right? They will be a part of the kingdom in eternity. But were they a part of the kingdom in their lifetime when they were here on the earth? Right? Because it's one thing to recognize the kingdom exists now in our time. Why? Because Christ has already come. But what about before Christ had already come? Did it exist back then? And we would again say yes, but it existed in a different form. It had not yet reached the stage that we come to with Christ of formal inauguration at the arrival of the Messiah. But the substance of the kingdom, we would say, was administered prior to Christ through two means. Really, basically one means. The word of God and the promises of God. That's how the kingdom in its substance was administered to the Old Testament saints. It's very similar to the question of the new covenant. Were the Old Testament saints members of the new covenant, the covenant of Christ's blood? Yes. But then we come to the book of Hebrews, and it tells us that a covenant is not formally inaugurated until the death of the testator. So the book of Hebrews seems to say, well, it's not really a formally inaugurated covenant until Christ comes. So if that's the case, then how, before its inauguration, were the Old Testament saints members of it? And the answer is that God was pleased to administer the blessings of the covenant and the kingdom through the promise. That's what they had, the promise of the coming seed allow them to participate in all the substance of these things. So what's true of the, the question of the new covenant is really this, uh, true of the question of the kingdom with respect to Old Testament saints. So we can say this, the development of Christ's kingdom, going all the way back to the beginning, to the fall, follows these stages. The kingdom is given and participated in by a promise. It is formally inaugurated as a kingdom in the coming of the Messiah. It is developed and administered and expands during the church age right now. It is consummated, brought to a higher mode of existence at Christ's return. And then it is eternally administered by the triune God. That's the development of Christ's kingdom. So the Old Testament saints were members of it, but they experienced it in a different stage of development than we do. Third question. I thought last time we said there was already a holy kingdom in the world. Israel. Now you're saying Christ comes and he brings us a new holy kingdom. Are there therefore two holy kingdoms now operating in the world? No. Remember last time the point was that Israel was what type of holy kingdom? Typological, right? So the promises given to the kingdom of Israel were not the substance. They were not eternal life. They were not on that level of eternal realities. They were simply a picture, a temporary foreshadowing of Christ's kingdom. 
so that when the true kingdom comes in Christ, the type can be fulfilled and subsumed by its antitype. So now when we come to our, where we exist now in history, there are not two holy kingdoms. The kingdom of Israel is no longer relevant to God. It's done. It's over with. Don't let anybody else tell you otherwise. Now, where does that leave us? Where does that leave us as Christians? We have established that both of the kingdoms, the, the common kingdom, and now the inaugurated holy kingdom of Christ exist and operate in the New Testament and therefore in the time period in which we live. And from all of this, I think it's safe to say this, that the Christian, because of those two kingdoms existing, is someone who possesses dual kingdom citizenship. The Christian is someone who participates in both. They are born, is the Christian, in this world, into the common realm in which all men find themselves. Then the Holy Spirit creates them as a new creature. He causes the new birth to take place. And that new birth is a birth into another kingdom, the kingdom of Christ. And Jesus very clearly connects new birth with kingdom citizenry. You remember the story with Nicodemus. Unless a man be born again, he cannot even see the kingdom of God. A Christian is a citizen who has been born into Christ's kingdom. However, that does not mean that because he is born into Christ's kingdom, that he ceases in this age to be a citizen of the common realm. The kingdom of Christ and the common realm are not two mutually exclusive items. It is not like China and the United States. You cannot be physically located in the U.S. and physically located in China at the exact same time. It's not possible, not for us at least. To go from one means of necessity, you have left the other. That's not what we're talking about here with these two kingdoms. With these kingdoms, they operate at the, sort of at the same time and in the, all the same sphere. And so until Christ's return and the common realm is brought to an end, we as Christians live as kingdom citizens of both realms. And it is that truth that we live in two kingdoms and two ages at the exact same time right now. That truth which leads to the classic difficulty of the Christian life. We are citizens of an eternal world order to come. And our hope is set upon it. As Paul says, we wait for the hope of the blessed appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. We're hoping for it. We're looking. Our attention is there. Christ is out there. He's in the heavenly places. And we hope for Him. So our eyes are heavenward. And we have duties that pertain to that heavenly kingdom wherein we get to taste of the powers of the age to come right now. Some of those duties are things where we're reading the Scriptures and we're meditating and we're praying. We're worshiping. We're engaging in self-examination. The mortification of our flesh and weaning ourselves from the things of the world. And living within the body of Christ, we have kingdom responsibilities when it comes to our citizenship in heaven. And yet, because the common realm is legitimate and God has been pleased to keep us in it for the time being, (coughs) we also have responsibilities and duties to that realm as well. But the things of this realm don't consummate. They don't last into eternity. They are not of the age to come. And so we do have a danger of overly investing ourselves, even in our duties in this realm. And yet we must invest in them because God has called us to. And therefore, there is always something of a tension, something of a constant tug of war within the Christian heart and mind. Am I fulfilling my duties to this realm? Am I investing too much time in them? Am I allowing myself to be overly consumed in heart and mind by the things of the world, even the good things? beyond the limits that God has established for them. 
How do I know where that magical fine line is where I can balance these two realms? And even if I do find that magical line for a period of time, there's no way to rest secure in it because I could always, by the changing of providence and my circumstances, be knocked off course and then have to recalibrate and reorient and get back into the proper balance. And it leaves us in a never-ending spiritual and psychological and emotional and even sometimes physical battle that we are having to fight within ourselves. <coughs> How do I taste of the glories of the eternal age to come and still find solace in the things of the common realm, which I know we're going to pass away? How do I work diligently unto the Lord in this kingdom and still keep my eyes focused on the heavenly prize? If you have ever felt anything approximating that struggle within yourself, if that's you at all, if you've ever thought, is this normal? Is this how is it supposed to be? Am I just not spiritual enough? The fact that I feel this struggle within me and I can never seem to get fully out of it. If that's you, and there's good news for you, Christian, according to God's word, that is the exact struggle that our Lord has said will characterize pilgrimage, those who uh, sojourn in this age all throughout their lives. I want to show you that. Consider a couple of passages. <coughs> Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. The Apostle Paul there says, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things that are above, not things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. Notice, Paul tells Christians who live in this age to set their mind on things that are above. Now, that's not merely a statement about thinking about morally pure things as opposed to sinful things. Verse 5 does mention there are sinful things that we're not to set our mind on. But Paul also points to the need to set our minds not just on morally pure things, but on an entirely different eschatological order than the one we're living in. Heavenly things, things that pertain to eternal and glorified life. He tells them to meditate on the, the, the sphere, the place where Christ himself is seated, where the age of glory has been inaugurated by his ascension into the heavens. In verse 4, Paul emphasizes that we are meditating on that state that we will experience when Christ appears with glory and we with him. In other words, the contrast that Paul is making here, whatever else we want to say about it, is at least at some level a contrast between temporal things on the one hand and eternal things on the other. And we are to set our minds on those eternal realities. Now, it's true that some people might abuse this text. And they might go to the extreme of saying, well, therefore, if we're to set our minds on the things that are above, then we should forget about this age and its kingdom and all the affairs in it and sit around and think about heaven all day and ignore the responsibilities that we have here. Now, since Paul doesn't qualify, if that's the only verse you had to go on, it'd be tough to refute that argument just based on the verse itself. However, it's clear that Paul doesn't intend that because we can go to other places that the Apostle Paul speaks to us. And he says in 2 Thessalonians, for example, chapter 3, For even while we were with you, we would give you this command, If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some of you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. So think about it. Apparently in the Thessalonian church they had some stargazers there who thought that the second coming was about to happen. And so what did they do? They abandoned their duties in the common sphere. They quit working. 
potentially quit uh, investing in, in their homes and their spouses and their children. They clearly stopped. And perhaps they could have said to Paul, but Paul, 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 you told us to set our minds on the things that are above, not things below. And that's exactly what we're doing. We are leaving behind the things of this life. But clearly, Paul didn't interpret his own words that way because he rebukes them. And so his statement in Colossians 3 about setting your mind up there cannot be interpreted as a statement to abandon this world. Nevertheless, we must not overreact to potential abuses of that concept of setting your mind on things that are above and then destroy the distinction that Paul does make between things that are above and things that are below, between the two different kingdoms and the important priority that is to be given to the contemplation of that realm where our life is hidden away with Christ. But you can see that's going to be a difficulty. I have duties here, but mine has to be on heavenly things where those duties are not necessarily going to continue. I'm not going to be raising my children and married to my wife in eternity. And Paul puts that tension right out there and he says, deal with it, work at it. But lest we be tempted to say, well, that's, that's easy for you, Paul. Paul himself lets us know that he's no stranger to this difficulty and this tension either. Think of what he says in Philippians chapter 1. There he describes his own inner turmoil as he considers the, the, the necessity of his work in this age juxtaposed against the concept of experiencing something of that age to come through death. Here's what he says. Between those two options, staying here, going to be with the Lord. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard pressed between the two. Hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Do you see it? He says it's hard. He says he felt it. I'm hard-pressed. I'm experiencing some kind of internal tension. But Do I go this way or do I go this way? Which one? The answer is not immediately clear and obvious to the Apostle Paul. There is something of a tension within him. There are duties that the Apostle Paul had here that are necessary. But this age and the duties of it don't consummate, and so it's far better to attain to the age of glory. And he doesn't say, I've got a simplistic mechanism for you, an easy way to resolve the tension. He felt it and he lived in it all the time. And brethren, that struggle of being in this age and having to work and to press and to endure in obedience while simultaneously striving for another age is something that the book of Hebrews says has always characterized the saints of God. In Hebrews chapter 11, we read of Abraham. Listen to this, how this little detail just goes by there. Abraham went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob. Now notice, we just tend to skip right over this. But the author of the book of Hebrews specifically mentions Abraham having to execute his duties in the common affairs as he did this. He had to wake up each and every day and fashion tents and dig wells and raise livestock and discipline his children And interact with civil magistrates like Abimelech and deal with the affairs of his immediate family and his extended family. He had to work on his marriage, right? He had to keep up his house. Those tents that he was building are not going to be in glory. They're not going to be there. And yet he had a duty regarding them right now. He had to wake up every day and walk in obedience to the common affairs that surrounded him. And yet, though his eyes and his mind were always concentrated on those things, he didn't ignore them. In the very next verse, we read that in spite of all that, the fact that he gave his attention to temporal affairs, he says, does the author of Hebrews this, even in the midst of it, Abraham, 
was looking forward to a city that has foundations, whose founder and builder is God. How can he do that? How can he keep his mind on the affairs of the common realm and do them just as Paul said, and yet at the same time, as Paul said elsewhere, keep his eyes on things that are above? The answer is by faith, by the divine gift of supernatural faith. Consider what the book of Hebrews goes on to say in verse 13. These all, all the Old Testament saints, died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were, get this, strangers and exiles on the earth. You see, they greeted these things from afar. And when you look far off at something, when your eyes are focused far off, you can still see right in front of you. But you can also see what is out ahead on the horizon. And that's the situation. That's the, 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 the state that faith, the eyes that faith gives us. It gives us that ability, that sight, where we can keep our eyes focused on the things of heaven. But we can also see and attend to that which is right in front of us. We can walk in obedience in the things of this life that, that surround us every day, but always, always keep within our line of sight the heavenly realities that await us where Christ is seated. Now, is that an easy thing to do? No, it's not. It's not an easy thing to do. But according to the New Testament, that struggle is the lot of those who are strangers and exiles on the earth. And the problem, brethren is that we have to adjust our expectations of our pilgrimage here. We don't like to feel struggle and tension. And so when we do feel it, we do experience it, it, you know, how it's hard to diligently attend to the affairs of the common realm while keeping our gaze at heaven. When we feel that struggle, when we feel that tension, we have to say, we start to say to ourselves, this doesn't seem right. This should not be the case. I should not have to experience this. So something has to be done to fix this right now. The answer from the New Testament is no, that tension, if it is truly a longing after the man of God who is seated in heavenly places, if that's what is leading to the tension within you, that your eyes are set there, but you want to be faithful here, then that is exactly what the New Testament says God has for you. That is the sign that things are going right. It's not necessarily a sign that things are going wrong. Now, we'll talk a little later tonight about when things do go wrong. But just the existence of the tension itself shouldn't cause us to say, I've got got a problem here. Yeah, we examine ourselves, but it's okay. That lets us know that we have some basis for saying, I am a stranger in an exile here. My citizenship is in heaven, and there's something in me that feels that. And yet, even though I feel this tension, even though I feel this struggle, and I have to walk through my entire pilgrimage on this earth with it, I can still make no complaint against God because the lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. And what's so encouraging about this fact is that it's not something that's even brand new when Christ comes in and introduces his, inaugurates his kingdom into the world, this, this struggle. In fact, it's something that was predicted of the New Testament saints going all the way back to the days of Ezekiel. In Ezekiel's temple vision, you know, he gets the, he gets the picture of that, that eternal temple which is fulfilled in the church. He's seeing the realities of Christ's kingdom. But in addition to seeing the temple, one of the other things he sees is the Levitical priesthood. 
he sees some priests. And he gets a, a description from the angel about who these priests are and what their functions are going to be. And when we come to the New Testament, we're told over and over again that we are the fulfillment of said priesthood. So we can go back into Ezekiel and say, these things were written down concerning us and for our instruction. Now think about what God says specifically about this future kingdom of priests that will serve God in his final temple. Listen to what he says about them in chapter 44, verse 23. They shall discern between the holy and the common, and between the clean and the unclean. See, it was prophesied of us that we would be a people who had to constantly be working and putting forth effort at discerning between the holy and the common, of keeping our eyes on the holy things where Christ dwells and that kingdom, and yet also at the same time attending to the affairs of this life. The Bible has always said that this is the daily experience, the daily tension that saints will feel throughout their sojournings. It's always been true since the fall of God's saints. They've always had to work at doing this distinction. So then, does any of that ring true in your heart? Do you have any semblance of having experienced that tension within you? Not have you experienced the tension of, I've committed sin and I know that I'm guilty before God. Okay, that's your conscience. Even unregenerate men sometimes feel something of that tension, that natural tension. I'm asking if you have felt this particular tension, where your affections are for the things of God and places where Christ is seated. And yet at the same time, you want to be faithful and diligent in your common affairs. You know that they won't be with you in eternity, but you want to be balanced. And it's hard. Have you felt that? Is that you at all? If not, you have cause to question whether you're truly in Christ and whether your affections have actually been set on the man of heaven. But if it is, take heart. If it is, take heart. You have a multitude of witnesses who have gone before you in that struggle. So then, what's left to talk about now? What's left is this. Now that we know that there is attention and we should expect attention, what do we do about it? How do we live in light of it? How does this actually become practical in our daily lives? That's what we're going to talk about tonight.